0: Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, this is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can taste and smell fresh manna. Today, you'll be listening to Pastor Sean Grisendine, pastor of the Oakland Seventh-day Adventist Church and assistant pastor of the Bessemer and Greenland Seventh-day Adventist Churches. Now, here's Pastor Sean.
1: It's a blessing to continue our journey through the sanctuary. Through the sanctuary atonement at the ark, this is our seventh and last message in this series on the sanctuary. And as we delve into God's word, I invite you to kneel with me in prayer. Let's invite the Holy Spirit. To teach us. Dear Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to be able to better understand your character and the purposes that you have for us. Lord, you've told us in Exodus 25, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And that is our desire, Lord, that we would dwell with you, not just here by faith, but ultimately in your very presence as you remove sin from our lives, you blot it from the sanctuary, and you prepare us to be with you for all of eternity. So, Lord, I pray that you'd hide me behind the cross of Christ, that Jesus will be lifted up, and that your Holy Spirit will be teaching us and guiding us so we can understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that your final answer? I'm sure you've heard that before. Growing up, I remember watching the show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And each time a person was trying to discern what was the correct answer to four choices, sometimes they would eliminate two of them in a 50-50, they had to come to a final decision. And I was thinking about that in light of where we are in in this time in earth's history, that essentially, each and every one of us has to make a final decision, a final answer. And it's not just the question of what we're going to do in one area of our life, but your entire character becomes your decision. Everything that you're doing is what you're choosing, as far as whether you cooperate with Christ or not. And so our scripture reading from Revelation 22, 11 and 12, fittingly describes a time in which every decision has been made final it's not that god arbitrarily says you can't choose anymore it's that everyone has made their choice and the sanctuary's cleansing which we're looking at the ark at this point in our series we're going to realize is basically god's full purpose that have his law written in our minds in our hearts and there will be those who do not cooperate in that experience so we can pray that that would be our final answer is to be fully on the lord's side revelation twenty two eleven and twelve he that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still, and he that is righteous, let him be righteous still, and he that is holy, let him be holy still, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. in other words, this decision has already been made before Jesus comes, so we have to understand. What is atonement really about? Well, actually, atonement is a compound word that really means at one meant. It's being brought back into oneness with God. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, our entire human race has been plunged into a separation from God. And so we need a reconciliation experience through Christ. The sanctuary shows us how God does that. And I'll just recap our journey so far. We learned about the importance of entering into God's presence with praise and thanksgiving, keeping our focus on his character. But then as we focus on God's goodness and perfection, we begin to see our own sinfulness. Hence our need of a savior, which was typified at the altar sacrifice fulfilled when Jesus died on Calvary's cross. And then from there, we see that the, the laver, a little bit further into the sanctuary, further in the services, represented this washing and cleansing. God calls us not just to accept Jesus as Savior, but also cooperate with him in selfless ministry, and we need to be cleansed and washed by the Holy Spirit. Then in the Holy Place, we learned about the table of showbread, the need to feed on God's word, that bread representing Christ, the bread of life, John 6, 48. The seven-branch candlestick on the south side representing how we need to go through the trying experiences that the gold of faith is refined and purified, faith working by love so we can be anointed with the Holy Spirit, to be a Christ-like witness. And then the altar of incense, the closest piece of furniture to the ark, which represents the importance of intercession and prayer in our Christian life. You cannot live a successful Christian life without earnest prayer. That's how Jesus lived through his life, and that's how we also will overcome. And that brings us then to the most holy place where the ark was contained. It was beyond the last veil, and that was the very veil that when Jesus died on the cross was torn in two representing that no longer is there anything on earth that we need to be expecting to be restored or rebuilt. Rather, our focus is on Christ, and he is now in heaven. There are some people that they actually think that in order for Jesus to come, a temple has to be rebuilt in literal Israel. That's not biblical. It would basically be saying that Jesus didn't die on the cross and that the veil was not torn in two. It already has been finished. However, Christ's ministry in the sanctuary is not complete, because he's seeking to finish what he started in our lives, and he's promised to do that if we will cooperate with him. So we'll be learning about that ark. And I'd like us to now turn to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, because the ark was the only piece of furniture that was ever experienced in terms of connected with by the high priest only once a year on the day of atonement. Leviticus 16, looking at verse 2. Leviticus 16, we'll look at verse 2. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So this verse tells us that God's plan was that the priests would only come once a year. It was not that they would come all the time. Before we go any further on what took place in the Day of Atonement, look further, We want to understand what was the ark composed of? How was it made? So we go to Exodus 25, beginning in verse 8. Just back one book, Exodus 25, verse 8. We want to understand this piece of furniture because this is the place where God was dwelling. His presence was right there above that ark, above the mercy seat. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without, shalt thou overlay it, and thou shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cube and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work, shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So notice here that this is a sacred enclosure for the law, and it's describing the word testimony. It's also mentioned again in verse 21. That testimony is none other than the law of God. And so the fact that there were two angels above this made from that golden mercy seat indicates that the angels have an intense interest in the plan of salvation. In fact, we could also realize that each of us also has angels that are watching over us as God wants to write his law in our hearts so that we become like an ark in an experience where God is living in us, he's abiding with us, and the angels are the ones protecting and helping us. Now, to better understand what was taking place on the Day of Atonement, we need to continue now in Leviticus 16, verse 3. We'll go up to verse 10. Because in this service, this was the only time that the high priest would ever approach this ark. And it was to make a final atonement for the record of sins that had been accumulating through the year. Every time sins were confessed, they were recorded to the sanctuary. Just like when we confess our sins, as it's promised in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But every time we do that and we believe it and we have confessed them and forsaken those sins, it's recorded in the sanctuary as forgiven. But the record of it being forgiven is still there until Christ reaches our life case and blots it out. And that's what the Day of Atonement was all about, blotting even the record of the remembrance of those forgiven sins. So the good news is that when we get to heaven, there won't even be a record of what we've been forgiven of. It's been completely obliterated because of what Jesus has done for us, and that's what's taking place in the Day of Atonement services here, described in Leviticus 16. So now let's continue verse 3. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place, with a young bullock for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen miter shall he be attired, these are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself, and for his house. And he shall take the two goats, and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord, to make an atonement with him, and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. So this would have been the role of Aaron while he was serving as high priest. And he was an example of what Jesus would do When the prophetic period described in Daniel 8, 14, and he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. At that conclusion of that period, which culminated at 1844 on October 22, that was when Jesus moved from the holy place to the most holy place, just like how Aaron on the day of atonement went from his ministry in the holy place and then would do that final work of atonement in the most holy place. Jesus has been continuing that aspect of ministry since that time. And so we can be thankful That the people, for example, that lived thousands of years ago, that those who accepted Christ by faith looking forward, their life cases have already been examined, and it's decided whether they overcame through Christ or whether they said they believed, but they didn't actually overcome through Jesus. A good example of this might be someone like Judas. If Judas had died before he committed suicide, many of the disciples would have thought, wow, what a great guy. You know, he's always handling the money, seems like he's really faithful. They didn't know the secret problem that Judas was dealing with. And so, thankfully, in the cleansing of the sanctuary, this time of atonement, it's going to reveal the people that really, in heart, were not truly reconciled to God. And we can be thankful for that, because that means people that don't really want to be like Jesus are not going to be in heaven. They wouldn't even be happy there. That means sin will never happen again. So some of us might say, why do we need this second step? Because we would say, well, Jesus forgives us at the cross. Yes. The provision for forgiveness is made there, but whether we cooperate with that, the evidence will be given in the sanctuary. And so God is a God who's doing everything so that no lingering questions will cause sin to ever happen again. And I praise God for the thoroughness with which he handles the sin problem, and he's able to completely give us victory and transformation. So continuing now in Leviticus 16, 15 and 16, look at what takes place with the goat here mentioned says, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, and that goat represents Christ, by the way, as a sin offering, that is for the people. Yes, Jesus died for us. And bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation, that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now, there were two goats mentioned. The Lord's goat, which represents Christ, was sacrificed. But the scapegoat, something else was done with that goat. That goat represents none other than Satan. Let's look now at verses 20 through 22, describing what takes place with this goat. Leviticus 16, 20 through 22. And when he hath made an end of reconcile in the holy place, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and the altar... He shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now we might ask, well, How does this represent Satan? Well, think about this. Who is really responsible for sin in the universe? It's the devil. Isaiah 14, let's turn there. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, is describing the root problem. And if it had not been for what Satan had done in in heaven, and then spread his rebellion to this planet, and he tempted Adam and Eve to sin against God, we wouldn't have the problem. So God is a just and merciful God. And all the sins that have been confessed upon Jesus are transferred through the sanctuary cleansed, blotted out, and then placed upon the head of the one that's really guilty, and that is Satan. I'll just add this note, and you think about it, Satan actually has a pretty vested interest in you not accepting Jesus and overcoming. Here's why. Because all the sins that he ever attempted you to commit, he wants you to bear them and to be consumed and to be destroyed and to feel that guilt. But if you confess them to Jesus, they're transferred through Christ, through the sanctuary, and then they go on his head. So that means that Satan will actually suffer more when he's finally consumed if you overcome through Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, really. Basically, the more you help people overcome, the more people that accept Jesus, the more Satan rightly suffers for what he has done to cause harm and misery to this universe. And it's not out of any vindictive motives against the devil, it's just just due. Like he's really the cause of this. And you know, it's a tragic thought that there will be people that were on the verge of salvation and they gave up, because maybe they just needed that extra prayer. Maybe they just needed that extra word of encouragement. You know, God is going to give you victory, and that's the thing. We need to realize there's a real eternal destiny weighing for every single one of us. So keep that in mind. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation, in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Well, we realize that in trying to rise above God, he fell far below his purpose. Lucifer, who became Satan, which means accuser, is responsible for all the sin in the universe. And self-seeking is really the root problem that Satan has basically plunged our race in, as if seeking our own selfish ways will make us happy. It does not. Now, when we think about how sin has to be dealt with thoroughly in God's plan of salvation, where is sin really written? Notice here in Jeremiah 17 and verse 1, because yes, sin has been a devil problem, a Lucifer problem, but it also has become our problem, and we need to have victory and know how to have God blot it from our experience. Jeremiah 17 verse 1, This is a scripture that describes where sin is written down. Jeremiah 17, verse 1. It says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. So I don't know if you realize this, but every time you sin, that sin is written on your heart. And basically, that is something that is separating you from God if it's not confessed and forsaken. And we might wonder why it is that people tend to be maybe afraid of God or apprehensive of him. That's the original sinful condition. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't want to be with God. Well, because there's something that has changed in their heart. Notice Jeremiah 17 verse 9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So obviously there's a problem internally. It's not enough to just conform to an external expectation. We have to have a heart transformation here in order for the gospel to really prepare us to be with God again. So the situation is one that requires nothing less than a supernatural miracle. And you might say, well, why doesn't Satan get a chance at that? Well, to be very honest, there was nothing more that God could do for him. Lucifer was in the very light of God's glory and his very presence in heaven. And God was patient with him, but he would not turn. But you and I are in a different condition than Satan. We haven't fully seen what heaven is like, or all of God's character. There's still more that he's showing us of his loveliness as we behold Jesus. So the more we contemplate what Christ is like, the more we actually discover that sin, why would I want to do that? It hurts Jesus. It separates me from God who loves me. And we begin to realize we can have victory through beholding Christ. Hence the promise in Ezekiel 36, 26 is so essential to this heart work. Ezekiel 36 in verse 26, and we need this in order for the sanctuary to be cleansed, the root problem of sinful hearts has to be addressed. Because, yes, Jesus would be able to finish the work in the sanctuary very quickly if he had a people that allowed him to fully renew their hearts and to keep them from falling back in their old sinful ways. Yes, he's able. The key is faith. Faith that works by love. And the more we want to have strong faith, the more we spend time beholding Christ. Ezekiel 36, 26. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And connecting that, it's not just a new heart, it's a new spirit. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. So when the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in your new heart that God promises to recreate, then instead of having all those sins written there, You've confessed them to Jesus. They're blotted out. But as a Christian, and this is where we need to understand, if you fall back into sin, that gets written on your heart. You need to confess that so it's washed and you have a new heart again. Hopefully that makes sense, how this experience works. And God often allows us to go through trials that we're like, wow, I didn't realize I was still struggling in that area. And if you fall back into it, you need to confess it. But believe that Jesus can keep you from falling back there. And your character will be strengthened as you cooperate with Jesus. the key, though, is remembering that with the Holy Spirit, all the fruits of the Spirit will be in our experience and not one missing. So there will be temptations at times to be impatient or to be unkind. But those are not fruits of the Spirit, like love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance. All these traits are from Jesus, and he wants to live in our hearts. This is how we overcome, and this is how the great controversy Dealing with sin is finally finished, is that we allow God to finish the gospel experience, maturing, and we mature the more we spend time with God and the more we understand our own weaknesses, because our weak points in Christ can become our strengths. Are you glad for that? The areas where you struggle, you're probably going to be praying more about, and the more you're praying about it, the more you realize, Jesus can help me here. There's promises that apply to the temptation to gossip or the temptation to be you know, fault finding or the temptation to steal. And every area of our life is examined by God, not because God is trying to find fault with us. He is trying to find evidence that we're safe to be in heaven. He's trying to find evidence that we really have experienced what the gospel has provided for. Now, as we go through these experiences in the Christian life, a final maturation is promised. And notice in Mark 4, 28 and verse 29, Mark 4, verse 28 and 29, Jesus understood this in light of how agriculture works, and we know it to be true. If you plant corn, you expect at some point later in the summer to get a full ear that looks just like that kernel you planted. And so Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in us as his people, and he will have his desire fulfilled. The question really is, will I be part of his desire? Will I cooperate with what he has provided for? because he will have people that overcome. It's just, he says, will you be one of them? He longs for that. Mark 4, verses 28 and 29. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. So if we think about this, every single one of us is maturing. We're either becoming more and more settled into a Christ-like character? Or, you think about Judas, even though he professed to be a follower of Christ, he was actually becoming more and more settled in his fraudulent, covetous practices of stealing from the money bag. And so every day, your character is being formed. Every day you're choosing whether you overcome or whether you slide back in those old patterns. And as a result, you are basically choosing your eternal destiny. Remember, it's only through Jesus that we can overcome. But in Revelation 14, 14 through 16, we see that the crop ripens up for both the righteous and the wicked. And that is what was described also in Revelation twenty two eleven. Basically, every choice is made. Everyone has made their decision of character. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16. You know, I think about how many areas of the United States this Tuesday are going to be voting. And in a time of an election, you know, we think about you know, the choices that people have in, in making their vote. But have you ever thought about the fact that your character is essentially your vote? Your character is whether you vote, yes, God is love, or no, I don't believe God is love. I agree with Satan's accusations against God. I'm going to live for myself. But there's really no middle ground. It's really the two choices that are available in the universe. Don't believe God and live for yourself. Fully believe God and allow him to transform you into selfless love. Revelation 14, 14 through 16, describing this final reaping that we saw prophesied in Mark 4. 29. And they looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the son of man. So this is Jesus having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. So this is describing the second coming. And it goes on in verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap: for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. So you could think of it this way. Every one of us is ripening. Are we ripening to be more like Jesus? Or are we ripening to be more like the accuser? Because remember, Satan was still worshiping God professedly while he was carrying on his rebellion. Don't think that in order to be lost, you have to be out there in the world, never going to church. We can be lost and yet know a lot about God. Lucifer knew so much about God, and for some reason, he still wanted his own way. So we need to really be praying, Lord, I want to be changed in character, not just to keep up an appearance of, of spiritual things or religion. We need Christ in the heart. Now, you'll remember that when we read in Leviticus 16, there was a fit man that was the one that would actually lead that scapegoat out into the wilderness. And you might ask prophetically, who would that represent? Well, you're in Revelation 14 already. Let's go to verses 1 through 5. And here would be a group of people, a corporate demonstration, Of individuals that have basically nothing that Satan was able to get them finally in the time of trouble and all that the devil could throw at them, they would not go along with his deceptions. And thereby, they've experienced fitness of character to silence the devil's accusations. And thus, once Jesus comes and takes them, where is the devil? He's basically confined to this desolate earth for a thousand years. Hence, leading that scapegoat, the devil, into the wilderness. Does that make sense? How that fits together. And so essentially, if the devil is planning his strategy, he's trying to prevent this from happening because he wants more time to cause more misery and more harm and destruction. And God is saying, I want to speed up this process, this ripening, so that we can end the sin problem and all be reunited with God, who have, quote, overcome. So describing the character of those that are victorious in this closing experience, the the individuals that will be alive when Jesus comes, Revelation 14, through 5 And it looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 140 and 4,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And it heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And it heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song, but the hundred and forty and four thousand, which are redeemed from the earth, these are they which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God. So indeed, by having the character of Christ, the Father's name written in their foreheads in experience of victory, they are able, because of their witness, to silence the devil's accusations. And that's really what's going on. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but every time you choose to sin, the devil just, I mean, exults He's like accusing and saying, God, you know, you call them, you know, they're not really acting like you right now. Every time you choose to follow Christ, basically, the devil is losing his power in your life. So just remember the great controversy and the experience we're going through. really helps to, you know, it's not just a small little sin here and there. No, that's basically saying you still have sympathy with God's enemy who's trying to cause untold misery. And we are really the individuals that have the privilege of helping to hasten the coming of Jesus. I mean What a privilege this is to say, Lord, we're willing to have hearts completely transformed, characters maturing so that the harvest will be fully ripe. Because yes, it will be ripe for the righteous, but are you noticing out in the world that it's getting ripe for the wicked? You notice that, how the world is becoming more and more violent? Well, it's just like it was in the days of Noah. Basically, everyone is choosing their side, and it's going to be very marked. You know, if we think there's going to be, a, you know, just a blending, no, more and more, there's going to be more of a decision. And so God wants us to realize the solemn responsibility we have at this experience of being one with God. Now, to understand what the Israelites did at the time of the cleansing of the sanctuary, the Day of Atonement, It gives us some insights into how we should approach this time in earth's history. I'd like us to turn to Leviticus 23, 27 through 32. For one thing, the Israelites would fast on that day, and they were not to do any work. And the reason for this is that their minds were to be clear, they were to be able to discern God's voice, and to understand if there was anything that they had not made right with God. They wanted that to be set free from their life. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 27. Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy for among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and ye shall afflict your souls. In the ninth day of the month at even, from even unto even, shall you celebrate your Sabbath. Now it was called the Sabbath, not because it necessarily fell on the seventh day of the week, but it was treated like a Sabbath, a time for rest, focusing their minds, afflicting their souls, And this doesn't mean any self-mutilating behavior. This is not cutting their bodies or this means afflicting their heart, really earnestly praying. Is there any sin that I have not confessed? Is there any area of my life that I have not allowed Jesus to change? And this is the kind of heart work that we need to be earnestly cooperating with the Holy Spirit to do at this time. And it really affects our eternal salvation, whether we will overcome or whether we will be negligent. We'll say, oh, it's not a big deal. Sin is a big deal. It's such a big deal that it caused Jesus to die on the cross. And so if we want to really have the motivation for victory, I would encourage you to spend a thoughtful hour in the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. As you grasp what he went through there, it's very intense. And it's not merely the physical suffering. It's especially the sense of spiritually being separated from his father. And that's really, the closer we get to Christ, the more we realize sin does cause us to feel that separation. It's hateful. And that's what God wants for us, is to, to realize its hideousness and turn from it in heart so that we will not repeat those habits again. Now, another aspect that we could think about here as it relates to our church family is when we come together for corporate times of worship, this is especially a time for us to be reverent and prayerful and thoughtful. We want to be able to discern what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us when we're in worship. Notice in Leviticus 19, verse 30. Leviticus 19, verse 30. The scripture says, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. You know, at times we may be tempted to visit or to catch up with friends or, you know, even to whisper among ourselves. But really, the sanctuary, and when I say the sanctuary, the place of worship, house of worship here, we should be thinking about how God is wanting to communicate with us. And so, if we're here to pray and to have our minds stayed on Christ, yes, it's a place for us to share testimonies when that's appropriate. It's a place for us to sing with our whole heart. True reverence does not mean gloomy silence. It means joyful solemnity. It means joyful reflection on Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. If we lose sight of what Christ is doing for us in heaven, I really believe it affects our worship here in our local church. And the reason I really want us to prayerfully understand this is that the better we understand the implications of true reverence and appreciating God's character, the Faster Jesus can come. Think about that. Because you may have needed to hear something that was said by someone else in the Sabbath school, but you can't hear it if you're, you know, distracted. And I'm going to just say this, and I don't mind having phones in the sanctuary, but they need to be on do not disturb or airplane mode or off. Because this is not a place for us to be playing games on our phones. This is not a place for us to be distracted by other things and spiritual things. And yes, people do use their phones to look up scriptures. I'm not opposed to that, but I want to really encourage you. Sometimes it's a temptation. You're looking at a scripture and then a text comes through. Are you going to text or are you going to read the text from scripture? The reason why we should really think about this is that the Israelites essentially on that day said no distractions. And that's really why we've come together to worship is to be undistracted in focusing on God so that we're ready to meet him in person. He's coming. Jesus is coming very soon. He's wanting to get us ready. And so the way that the Israelites approached the Day of Atonement is an insight into how we should approach that solemn opportunity. Now there's another aspect of this, and it was on the Day of Atonement that the Israelites actually completely laid aside all adornment. And I'm not saying that they should have been wearing it any time, because God was very clear throughout Scripture that they were to be simple and modest in their deportment. But sometimes we're tempted to follow the customs of the world and how we dress, or putting on rings or, you know, different jewels and bracelets. And the thing is, nothing external should show any sympathy with the world. We want to be holy unto God. And the reason for this is because our character is the witness that says whether we're fully on the Lord's side or we're still sympathetic with the enemy. And so I really believe that as we understand the solemn joy and responsibility before us as God's people, we will help to hasten the coming of Christ and what is described in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 9, let's turn there, will come to pass very soon. This is what happens on earth once Jesus comes. Because the devil will be bound. And yes, he will be completely stopped from committing any more temptation against God's people. I'm ready for that. I really believe that would be wonderful that we can help hasten this. Because Jesus wants to be with us. That's what the sanctuary is all about. Total restoration of the relationship to be in God's presence. Revelation 20 verses 1 through 9. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of them of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them. So this will be the final end of Satan and all sinners. Fire will finally consume them. The word devour indicates there will be an end. And so while it may seem like this is taking a long time, God is patiently yearning and searching out for people that are willing to respond to Jesus in these closing moments. I pray that we will be found faithful, abiding in Christ, and cooperating with him in this final overcoming victory. So once again, going back to that ark, how does the ark relate to atonement? Well, what was in the ark was the law of God. And God says, I want to reproduce my character and my people. So that everything that we just described here in Revelation 20, that final cleansing, that final cleansing by fire, we would not be a part of that. Because if we do not overcome, that will be our fate. We will be consumed. We will no longer exist. We will miss out on eternity with God. And that's not the greatest motivation. The greatest motivation is beholding Jesus. In Hebrews 8 verse 10, God promises to reproduce His character in us, and we can pray for that experience in Christ. Hebrews 8 and verse 10. Hebrews 8 and verse 10. This is His promise, and it directly relates to what is happening in the Day of Atonement. Hebrews 8:10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. God's desire is that we will be one with him. We think of Jesus' prayer, which is his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3. We'll read it here. He was desiring that we would have eternal life. And the thing is, you don't have to wait until you're in heaven or wait until the thousand years have come and we're in heaven and the devil is bound here to have eternal life. You can have it today if you respond to Christ with the whole heart because the promise is of his presence. By faith, we receive him into the heart and then we will... Truly see him when he comes. John 17 and verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That intimate knowledge, that experiential knowing of God. That's why we come to church. That's why we read our Bibles. That's why we pray. That's why we witness. Is so that not only we would know God, but others would come to know and experience the presence of God in their lives. That's why we were made. We were created to know and to love God, and God is love, and he loves relational experiences with his people who were created to enjoy him. We were made for his pleasure. So the fruition of the Day of Atonement will be none other than the sealing of God's people, that final ripening, settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that we're not moved. No matter what the devil throws at us, we've made our choice. That is our final answer. And the only way to keep that fresh every day is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The one who started this and has promised to finish this. Hebrews 12 verse 2, our last text we'll look at. This is how we have the victory and we should never lose sight of this. God takes us right where we're at. We may be just starting the Christian journey. Praise the Lord. We may have been walking with Jesus for years now. Praise the Lord. But keep your eyes on Jesus, the one who will finish what he started in our lives. Hebrews 12 verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, Endured the cross, despised in the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, if we had to contextualize this to where we find ourselves, what if we said, "Jesus, out of what you have done, I want to respond with a whole heart, and out of that joy of overcoming with you, we'll say, Even if that means I go through the time of trouble, even if that means that I live through the time when the seven last plagues are falling, which I would encourage you to read psalm ninety one You don't need to be afraid because God has promised to protect us. The key is that we overcome through Jesus. Every sin, every temptation resisted, every time we turn from those things and we turn our eyes on Jesus, we are choosing our eternal destiny to be with God forevermore. Isn't that great? The ark, the atonement that he has provided for us, Christ's final cleansing work. I pray that we will all be there. We will allow Jesus to do what he so desired to do, and that is finish the great controversy. Cleanse the universe from sin and have us to be with him. So if it's your decision to invite Christ to abide in your heart and give you that complete victory over sin by his indwelling presence as you yield your whole heart to him, that's your desire today. I invite you to stand with me now. Praise the Lord. And as the Holy Spirit invites you, if there's anyone here that in light of this experience, this series, and realizing what Christ has for you, and you want to take that step in faith and prepare for baptism, Or rebaptism. If there's anyone here that wants to make that decision, would you just like to raise your hand? Jesus knows the desire of each one. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, let us kneel for prayer and ask the Lord to seal these decisions that have been made in His sight today. Father in heaven, it's a privilege to be able to journey with you by faith through the sanctuary. By faith, we look to Jesus who is now interceding for us in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary where he's blotting out the record of sins. And Lord, we ask that we would be complete victorious overcomers through you. We would not look at ourselves and get discouraged. We would look to Jesus and find hope and courage in every temptation and every trial to resist those temptations because you promised through your word that that's how we are to live, by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So Lord, strengthen each one here. Be with those who want to be baptized or rebaptized. Give them the courage as they take that step with you And thank you, Lord, for your faithful promises, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. Be with us as our prayer in Jesus' name, by your spirit, amen.
0: You have been listening to Pastor Sean Brisendine, pastor of the Houghton Seventh-day Adventist Church and assistant pastor of the Bessemer and Greenland Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you've enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath? I'm sure he'd be glad to meet you.